You are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover and Open Book. Back in September, at the last big anti-war rally in San Francisco, I happened along this gentleman somewhere at the end of the march. I'm here, uh, I'm a reporter with KPFA, which is a pacifist network, just to be, uh, just to be clear. But um, can you tell me about your sign and how you would want to be identified on uh, the radio or in a news piece? I would like to be identified as someone who loves America, someone who supports freedom across the world, and someone who thinks that the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, the wars that we should be fighting throughout Rwanda, Central Asia, the rest of Africa, and in Israel, are just because we're supporting freedom. So why is history important? Today on Cover to Cover, Open Book, we'll talk to several authors to commemorate a whole bunch of lesser-known anniversaries taking place today, December 2nd, 2005. I'm today's host for Open Book, Eric Klein. December 2nd is 200 years to the day since Napoleon's bloody victory at Austerlitz, his best day in a long, doomed march to conquer Europe. We'll hear from folks that are commemorating that day by dressing up and recreating the battle. You can read all you want about what the men experienced until you've actually done it, uh, albeit in a much safer and uh, secure way. Uh, you don't really have a full appreciation for the sacrifices that men made. John Brown, the anti-slavery mass murderer who stormed the armory at Harper's Ferry, hoping to arm a slave revolt, was hung on December 2nd, 1859, for his efforts. Imagine the situation in America if uh, a group of terrorists uh, tried to capture one of the main uh, weapons centers anywhere in the United States, uh, took hostages, and uh, uh, were at the same time threatening to launch a, a great revolt. That and a whole lot more, including a documentary that was produced at KPFA in 1961, all in the next 28 minutes. Stay tuned. At that same anti-war march that I mentioned earlier, I also happened on this large group of young people, and they attracted me because they were loud and lively and well-organized. Um, when I approached them, they... Uh, introduced me to their spokesperson. They were all Filipino, mostly college students. And when I asked their spokesperson, whose name was Joshua Castro, um, to tell me not just about why he was against the war in Iraq, um, but how it related to the other issues that he was interested in, this is what he had to say. Well, if you look at the history of, of the United States being involved in, in Asia, I mean, the Philippines people often refer to um, the Filipino-American War, which took place at the turn of the, the 20th century. It turned the 19th century into the 20th century as the first Vietnam. Um, it's completely forgotten history books, but it shows an, an, ex, an example of how the United States um, took control of a third world nation and has uh, continued to exploit its natural resources and, and the labor of its people like, over um, a long period of time. So Joshua Castro compared the very old war in the Philippines, uh, the war that's in the very distant past, with a more recent conflict that the United States engaged in, which was the Vietnam War. And the Vietnam War is very, very often uh, compared 
to the war that the United States currently is engaged in in Iraq. And everybody who listens to this station, I think it's safe to say, is of the opinion that the war in Iraq has always been a mistake. And they knew that. We all knew that um, two years ago. But um, it appears as though the American public, uh, the, the rest of the United States, has uh, caught up. And um, on this date in history, in 1962, after a trip to Vietnam at the request of President John F. Kennedy, U.S. Senate Majority Leader Mike Mansfeld became the first official to not make an optimistic public comment on the war's progress. In December 1898, the United States paid 20 million U.S. dollars to Spain for the territory called the Philippines. This was agreed upon between Spain and the United States at the Treaty of Paris after U.S. victory in the Spanish-American War. Unfortunately, I'm not necessarily sure whether a representative of the Philippines was present when that deal was agreed upon. Filipino people had been fighting against Spain for independence for years, and with the end of Spanish colonial rule, the Philippines declared its independence, and Emilio Aguinaldo was declared the first president of the country. In the meantime, the U.S. sends about 11,000 troops on boats to occupy the island in East Asia. Hostilities between U.S. forces and the Philippine army commenced three months later. The Filipino president, Emiliano Aguinaldo, is declared by U.S. President McKinley to be an outlaw bandit. The war is called the Philippine Insurrection instead of a war, thus avoiding involvement of the United States Congress. U.S. forces take control of Manila in a short month. The outlaw president, in command of the Philippine resistance forces, withdraws into the mountains north of Manila. On December 2, 1899, the 24-year-old Filipino general Gregario del Pilar, commanding 60 volunteer soldiers, dug trenches and built barricades on the narrow mountain trail and held the Pasang Rod from the advancing U.S. forces for five hours, while President Aguinaldo and the bulk of his men made their escape. 500 U.S. troops from the 33rd Infantry eventually overran their position, killing or capturing all 60 men fighting with the young General Gagario del Pilar, who died that day, December 2nd, 1899, at the beginning of the U.S. occupation of the Philippines, 106 years ago to the day. After the Battle of Tirad Pass, the war, which was known as an insurrection, got bloodier. The U.S. military became engaged in a guerrilla war with the Filipinos, which continued for 17 years. Alan Farmer is a history professor in England and the author of several textbooks, including a few on the American Civil War. I asked Alan Farmer to tell us about John Brown, who was a white abolitionist uh, at his raid on Harper's Ferry, Virginia. Brown and I think the best part of 18 men um, capture the, um, the armory at Harper's Ferry. I think the aim then, uh, as far as we we know, um, w w was that Brown and, and his men would take the weapons from Harpers Ferry and uh, try and uh, get up into the hills uh, where they would use the weapons 
to uh, to armed slaves, who they hoped would then rise in um, in revolt. Brown actually didn't get the the weapons out of uh, Harpers Ferry. He, he chose to to stay there, um, and uh, and then we get a typical terrorist situation. He takes a few hostages uh, and gets himself holed up in the uh, firehouse at uh, at the armory, um, and. Uh, uh, I mean, strange things then happen. Um, uh, um, a group of Marines sent from Washington to uh, negotiate and ultimately to storm uh, the building. Uh, they're led by uh, uh, none other than uh, Robert E. Lee. In the end, Lee orders his troops to, uh, uh, to, to, to seize the building. In the process, uh, a lot of folk are killed. Brown himself is wounded. Just how seriously remains a subject of some debate. After a speedy trial... John Brown was hung on this day, December 2nd, 1859. I, John Brown, am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land can never be purged away but with blood. I let them hang me. I forgive them and may God forgive them for they know not what they do. Raymond Massey, playing John Brown in the 1940 film Santa Fe Trail. The movie played fast and loose with history and starred Errol Flynn, Olivia de Havilland, and a very young Ronald Reagan. John Brown, in this movie, is clearly the bad guy. The nation in general and its feeling towards the institution of slavery and the notion of abolition, um, where, where were people in general uh, thinking at this time, and, and did the event actually shift the thinking? Good question. Um, we're talking December, um, well, Brown's executed on December the 2nd, uh, 1859. Uh, his execution is, uh, is, is, is well reported. And on that day, uh, there were some um, uh, northern towns, particularly New England, that, uh, that, that, that rang their church bells in, um, in sympathy with, with Brown. Southerners are, um, uh, oh, I mean, they're, they're, they're incredibly angry. The important point, of course, is the date. Uh, he's executed the 2nd of December, 1859. Um, the following year, um, Abraham Lincoln is elected the first Republican president. Uh, and uh, by the time Lincoln was inaugurated president in March 61, um, seven um, Confederate states have, uh, have left the Union, and four more are soon to follow, and the Civil War is around the corner. So the Brown, um, um, the Brown event um, w w definitely heightened tension um, in the build-up to the uh, 1860 presidential election. About 15 years before the Civil War, and long before the United States' first imperialist adventures in Asia, the U.S. was uh, expanding westward on its own continent. And uh, that westward expansion was pretty much overseen by a one-term president, James K. Polk. When he took office on March 4, 1845, James K. Polk was 49 years old, the youngest president yet. He had won his party's nomination due in part to his support for the annexation of Texas. He promptly made clear his intentions for the presidency and thus began his meteoric rise from Speaker of the House to the highest executive office in the land. The only speaker to gain such power yet, even to this day. Polk's goals for his presidency were as follows. One, the resolution of the dispute with the British over the Oregon Territory, summarized by the catchy slogan, 5440 or fight. 
two, the reduction of tariffs and the establishment of an independent U.S. Treasury. The Whigs, who had preceded Polk in power, had recently abolished the first Treasury, preferring instead to keep all of the country's money in private banks. And three, the acquisition of sunny California and all other inland territory from the sovereign nation of Mexico. And on December 2nd, 1845, 160 years ago to this day, James K. Polk made his expansionist aims clear in a speech before the United States Congress. Polk accomplished all of his goals in just a single term with money, cunning, and the force of arms. In just four years, the United States has added territory so as to grow to the shape we all recognize today as the map of the U.S. President Polk negotiated with the British, settling for less than the 5440 line without a fight adding the lower portion of the Oregon Territory to the country. The Lone Star Republic accepted the offer extended earlier, and Texas joined the United States. And when Mexico rejected the nearly $30 million Polk had offered for half of their country, he sent General Zachary Taylor and his men directly into a disputed area in the border regions between Texas and Mexico, instigating an almost immediate conflict. Thus began the United States' bloody war with Mexico. On December 2nd, 1961, Fidel Castro declared that he was a Marxist-Leninist and that Cuba was going to adopt communism. Castro's politics and what that meant for Cuba weren't much of a secret before that speech, but I suppose this date made it official. This was about six months after the Bay of Pigs invasion. The following documentary comes from the Pacifica Radio archives. It was produced right around the time of Fidel's speech in 1961 in the KPFA studios by Chris Koch. Here are some highlights. In the words of United Nations Radio, When the General Assembly's main political committee met again on Monday morning, April 17th, the Foreign Minister, Dr. Roa, again asked for the floor as a matter of great urgency. Debo anunciar en forma oficial y en nombre del gobierno que tengo la honra... I must announce officially, on behalf of the government which I have the honor to represent, that the Republic of Cuba was invaded this morning by a mercenary force which came from Guatemala and Florida and which was organized, financed, and armed by the United States of America. Ambassador Stevenson again replied. He declared that while his country sympathized with the aims of Cuban exiles, the United States had not committed any aggression. Dr. Roa, speaking for Cuba, has just charged the United States with aggression against Cuba and invasion coming from Florida. These charges are totally false and I deny them categorically. The United States has committed no aggression against Cuba and no offensive has been launched from Florida or from any other part of the United States. Saturday, April 22nd. Full story of Cuba disaster. Bitter rebels here were analyzing today the causes of the failure of their attack this weekend on the regime of Premier Fidel Castro. With their political leadership battered and divided, and with the underground organizations in Cuba badly mauled, rebel resentment is mounting against the United States and especially the Central Intelligence Agency over what is regarded here as monumental mismanagement. As has been an open secret in Florida and Central America for months, the CIA planned coordinated and directed the operations that ended in the defeat on a beachhead in southern Cuba Wednesday. Those were the words of the San Francisco Chronicle.
You've been listening to excerpts from a documentary courtesy of the Pacifica Radio Archives, produced at KPFA by Chris Koch in 1961. I'm Eric Klein, and this is Open Book, a special edition of Cover to Cover, commemorating this day in history, December 2nd. On December 2nd, 2001, Enron declares Chapter 11 bankruptcy. So I told you they were all crooks. I just didn't know how much. This is an Enron employee making a call from work not long after. It's just a big lie. I mean, it was, it's just so much worse than I thought. You know, I'd always been a cynic here, and then things, you know, the last few years I'd kind of turned around because I felt like a lot of good things were happening, and I could see all the money that our group was making. And it was just all, I mean, I, I, I just see, I see it now all the times that we were just lied right to our faces. Right here on the floor, very informal meetings, so just outright lied. Here we are. Yes. Jamie Court, uh, tell me <laughs> tell me how you would be identified in the story. You can say I'm the author of the book Corporateering and a consumer advocate, Corporateering, how corporate power steals your personal freedom and what you can do about it. Seems appropriate to this topic. Great. Well, um, let's. it's the four-year anniversary of the Enron filing Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Uh, what have we learned? Well, I think Americans have, have learned that when big corporations say they uh, have an innovative way to, to, to turn uh, a vital necessity of life like electricity into a commodity, uh, the public should think twice. And I think the public's learned a few things. One is that deregulation of the energy markets is a recipe for greed for energy pirates and shortages for the public. I think we've also learned that uh, CEOs will insist into their grave that their uh, corporations are uh, are not uh, are not dying, uh, and uh, stockholders and uh, regulators uh, can't take them at their word. And what about the the status of the energy? I don't want to call it a market, but that's what it is still, right? Um, but what about energy for Californians? Well, I mean, we are regulated now. Uh, we have gone back to where we were almost. What we lost, though, and what, what you can't, the way you can't put the genie back in the bottle is this. Um, we, uh, to get to a deregulated market, had to, had to allow the big utility companies to dump their energy plants. So private energy producers, largely unregulated by the state, are still in charge of our power. Uh, we have tighter reins on the utilities. We have tighter controls on what, they, on what those companies can do with their energy and whether they can sell to... Uh, big customers like Boeing and others but bypassing the public, but we don't have control over electricity in the way we used to. And uh, I don't know that we can ever put that genie back in the bottle. John Terman is the executive director of the Center for International Studies at MIT. He wrote The Spoils of War, The Human Cost of America's Arms Trade, almost 10 years ago. In the book, he traced the life cycle of a weapons system from Sikorsky Aircraft in Connecticut through Washington decision-making, and then on to Turkey, where the arms were used against the Kurdish insurgency in the southeast. The book was intended to demonstrate how arms exports actually occur and what their consequences are. And in this case, uh, we were looking at, uh, in the early 1990s to mid-1990s, a period in which there was a, uh, a drop in military spending, and so there were a number of military industrial plants that were jeopardized, jobs being lost, and so on. 
And that was part of the story in Connecticut. Democratic Senator Chris Dodd of Connecticut, in a move that we can assume saved those jobs, engineered a series of low-interest loans to sell about 80 Black Hawk helicopters to the Turkish military. It was, it was a major deal. It was the largest helicopter deal in history of export. And um, uh, the Black Hawks themselves are extremely capable, uh, very sophisticated. When I was researching the book in... Um, in Turkey and uh, and refugee camps in Greece and elsewhere, uh, I took testimony of um, of Kurdish villagers who had been rousted from their homes uh, by helicopters, had been uh, had seen their schools and and other buildings uh, gutted by helicopter fire and and so on and so forth. So, I mean, I have a lot of firsthand accounts of this having happened. John Terman's book, Spoils of War, The Human Cost of America's Arms Trade, was translated into Turkish and published earlier this year. Fadi Tosh, the publisher, is standing trial for his crime of insulting the Turkish Republic and military. He could face six years or more in jail. His day in court is today, December 2nd, 2005. There are about 50 other writers, journalists, and publishers on trial in Turkey at this moment for insults to the state. Today is the bicentennial of Napoleon's victory at the Battle of Austerlitz. We'll hear from history professor Alan Farmer, who spoke to us about John Brown earlier, and then two gentlemen taking part in the battlefield commemorations this entire weekend in South Morovia. Austerlitz is a, a colossal battle. It's a real bloodbath. I mean, we often tend to perceive these 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 engagements as somehow romantic and um, colorful and uh, not like the the bloodbaths of the First World War. Back in 1805, there were about uh, 20,000 victims of the battle, and obviously those soldiers uh, were buried on the battlefield in uh, in mass graves uh, all, all together. There were graves found, uh, founded on the battlefield where the Russians, French, and Austrians are laying next to each other in, in one grave. A lot of times when uh, modern guests come to our camps, They'll say, you actually sleep out here, you eat food over an open fire and uh, sleep on the ground, and we all go, yes. When they ask, how do you do it, we, our, our common answer is that, well, we're a little dirty, a little uncomfortable for a weekend, but the men that we're portraying and attempting in our way to honor live this day in and day out, week in and week out, month in and month out uh, for the duration of their service, careers, the wars, or in some cases, tragically, their lives. Uh, my name is Andrei Tupi, and uh, I'm the secretary of the Project Australia 2005. Uh, we are uh, organizing the, uh, the not only the reenactment of the Battle of Austerlitz, but also uh, uh, many uh, commemorative events at the mass graves around the battlefield, and uh, also the main piety act at the Monument of Peace uh, on Pratsen Heights, which is the which was the uh, actually the the center of the historic battle back in 1805. My name is Michael Matthews, and I am the unit commander for the 21st Regiment of the Line, French recreated in North America. There's a real 
camaraderie and esprit de corps amongst reenactors. You, you know, you can go into a room full of strangers, but you know that you've got something in common with every one of them right away because they, we have the shared love of history. We have the, the shared love of recreating that history for ourselves and for the public to keep the memories of the sacrifices and labors alive. By the way, the Battle of Austerlitz was a major plot point in Tolstoy's War and Peace, which is being honored next Tuesday in a special Pacifica Radio Archives broadcast. The Committee on Government Operations, chaired by Republican Senator Joseph McCarthy, held hearings behind closed doors in 1953 as a precursor to their more well-known televised hearings. Some individuals that were called to testify at the closed hearings were not called back to appear before Senator McCarthy and the American public at his televised hearings. Among them was American composer Aaron Copeland. The precise content of Copeland's testimony remained a secret until two years ago. In the course of the questioning, Senator Joseph McCarthy accused American composer Aaron Copeland of having one of the longest records of apparent communist activities of anyone who had yet appeared before the Senate Government Committee. Also during the hearing, Chief Counsel Roy Cohn told Copeland that evidence showed that he had signed a letter addressed to the President of the United States in the 1930s, urging the U.S. to declare war on Finland. Copeland said he was reasonably sure that he hadn't signed such a letter and indicated that he was more or less a pacifist and, more importantly, someone who was solely devoted to the composition of music over politics. In addition to his notoriety as a composer, Copeland had been employed through various agencies, including the State Department, for a number of years to lecture abroad on symphonic and serious music, as he put it. A role, he told the committee, that he valued very highly because it allowed him to share ideas with audiences in Europe and Latin America regarding what American composers were up to. McCarthy kept hinting that perhaps Copeland was selected for this particular duty because of his communist sympathies. Copeland did admit to joining an organization known as the National Council of American-Soviet Friendship during World War II, when the USSR was a war ally. He said he joined the music committee of the organization in order to exchange musical ideas with Soviet composers, but that he resigned when he became aware that the National Council of American-Soviet Friendship was on a list of subversive groups prepared by the Attorney General. A list of 27 so-called communist front groups that Copeland was told he was affiliated with was read into the record by Senator McCarthy. This list included being an entertainer at the American Music Alliance of Friends of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, a dinner sponsor of the Joint Anti-Fascist Refugee Committee, and a signatory to the Reichstag Fire Trial Anniversary Committee. Copeland said that he couldn't recall much about any of these things including whether or not it was true at all that he was involved in such groups. He told McCarthy and the committee that at best he may have put his signature on some penny postcards which were sent to him in the mail over the years. Aaron Copeland did say that he was glad he had attended the Cultural and Scientific Conference for World Peace in 1949 
despite knowing beforehand it was a communist-led event. He testified that he had attended in order to participate in the cultural exchange with Russian composers, but his experience was tainted by the political bent of the conference. Copeland said he hadn't participated in a like event since then, and he agreed to supply a written list of names of other Americans whom he could remember, though he promised that he couldn't remember very many, that had also attended the committee. Under oath, American composer Aaron Copeland denied being active in the progressive movement. Furthermore, Aaron Copeland rejected the Soviet practice of forcing composers to write music favorable to the state, saying it was a main reason he was against communism. He stated before the committee that he was unsure what revolutionary music was supposed to mean. Aaron Copeland, American composer, died on this day, 15 years ago, December 2, 1990. December 2, 1954, 51 years ago to the day, the United States Senate condemned Senator Joseph McCarthy by a vote of 65 to 22 for conduct that tends to bring the Senate into dishonor and disrepute. You are listening to Aaron Copeland's 1927 Concerto for Piano and Orchestra Part 2. This is Cover to Cover, Open Book. Special thanks today to Dina Maccabee, Glenn Reeder, Eric Park, Sean Dellis, Brian DeShazer, and Amelia Gonzalez. This program featured Alan Farmer, John Turman, Andre Tupi, Michael Matthews, Jamie Court, and a documentary from the Pacifica Radio Archive.